Alexander Price, and you're listening to The Number Station. For this episode, I had the pleasure of speaking with Anthony Cummins, who is a prolific author with over 20 books in print on the ninja in medieval Japan and samurai warriors. He publishes a large number of translations of scrolls with the sorts of techniques and instructions that were passed down from master to pupil within the various families and lineages of of samurai warriors and practitioners of ninjutsu. He's also recently begun a new project reviving one of the um, traditional samurai schools with the blessing of the family in Japan who are the descendants of the uh, founder and um, inheritors of the lineage. And uh, so we talk about that all quite a bit today. And also, as always, I'm especially interested in sort of the esoteric side of ninjutsu. And I ask a lot of questions about the kinds of magic that uh, ninjas practiced that accompanied the, uh, you know, extraordinary supernatural powers they were often believed to possess. Anthony also has a ton of videos on YouTube, which is a great place to start if you're looking for more information as well as his website at antonycummins.com, A-N-T-O-N-Y-C-U-M-M-I-N-S, which also has a link to um, the the Samurai School for more information about that. It was a great pleasure. I'm so uh, happy that uh, he uh, took this time to come and talk with us about this super interesting subject. Hi, my name is Anthony Cummins, and basically I am on a quest to find the answer, what did the samurai and shinobi really do? Now, everybody understands the term sh- uh, samurai. It means warrior from Japan. But shinobi, most people know as ninja. Now, a ninja is a spy commando agent from Japan, and they're more correctly known as shinobi instead of ninja. However, you also hear the term shinobi no mono, which also is the same thing. And you may hear terms like ninjutsu or shinobi no jutsu, which simply means espionage skills or spying skills or saboteur skills so you know just in general what who were the shinobi who i mean who were the uh um samurai so the samurai are actually a warrior class that started to develop around around the year 1000 and originally in japan the imperial family and the aristocrats were the leaders of the tribes but as the country unified together they become very very much you know, decadent, aristocratic, and the samurai, the servants, rose to power. And they actually took control of Japan and in, took control for over about 700 years. Um, one of the things that I appreciated in um, this wonderful book, The the Samurai and Ninja, yes. um, was uh, uh, emphasizing the importance of situating the discussion of samurai in a specific time period. I'm I'm just wondering, like, what were kind of the general time periods of, of samurai history? Right. Before the year 1000, you sort of build up to the, the iconic samurai with their samurai armor and their bows and the riding around on horses. And then they start to take power in the first... One, so you're looking at 1100, 1200, 1300, there's a big struggles for power in the samurai world. And then after that, we sort of get a period of peace and it all falls down again. And the 1400s, the 1500s are massive. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're sections of real warfare and conflict. And eventually, um, after many battles, a single samurai family, the Tokugawa, take control after the year 1600. And they basically keep Japan under their control until the 1800s, when the Americans open up the uh, open up Japan for trade. So, when we're talking about like uh, the classical age of the samurai, this is around like uh, medieval area, like maybe uh, 1400s, 1600s. Is that right? So, you, basically, from about the year 1100 to 13, 1400, you've got this classic idea of the samurai on mm-hmm. horseback with a bow running up and down the field and, you know, chasing people away, mounted, basically, cavalry. And then bit by bit in the 1400s, they start to become more static armies, very much, 
you know, with um, divisions on the ground, close in, uh, on foot, and they start to then learn from the Europeans and they bring muskets in. Mm -hmm. So by 1500s, just coming into 1600s, you've got a much, a much different warrior, but very much more a, a European style field battle. I was I was still very struck by some you know big differences between my modern image of a war fighter and um uh it seemed like the the uh the samurai they often had uh, it seemed like quite a few servants and had some relationship with the land and with farming yeah very much it's it's like vikings a lot of people don't realize that vikings or northmen if you like from northern europe have a big connection to the land the same as knights you have to have an estate if you don't have an estate that really pretty much um, supports you as a warrior, where are you getting your money from? So either raiding, war, or you have to have a farming estate which will keep um, a salary coming in so you can keep going to war. And the better you are at war, the more land they get, the more money they get, the more servants and extra helpers they can hire and become more powerful. But it seems like they also still had a relationship with some kind of feudal lord in the area that they were, were mm. they were they in turn servants of, uh, you know, some local nobility, for example? Yeah, so basically, if you were at the top of the pecking order and yeah. you owned all the land, you would then lease or allow that land to someone in exchange for military service. And of course, it, it goes down the pecking order. So the lower you are in the social hierarchy, the less land you have, the less servants you have, the less power you have. But normally, yes, there's somebody at the peak. The The only difference is, is that in the warring periods of Japan, the, the actual domains were much smaller. As it gets more to 1600, they, they break into only two factions and there's two people at the top. Then mm. after the year 1600, there's one person at the top and he's literally has all land in Japan and everybody serves him. Um, so it kind of seems like they were somewhere in the middle between um, a servant class and uh, a, a ruling class with a little bit of, of both qualities. Basically, a, a select amount of samurai at the top. Most of the samurai were serving those, but you've got to remember they're still in the top 10%, top 5% of all society. So even the lowest samurai mm -hmm. is higher than 90% of the people. And what like what percentage of their time might they spend uh, actively fighting? Was it a big part of their life? Was it a constant part of life? Like were they, uh, you know, was it kind of their job to be warriors like the same way we think of like a, a 9 to 5 Monday through Friday or so on? Their job is to, early on, was to have a family unit. So, for example, if there's a village uh, in a mountain or alongside the coast, they might own that village, say, and they're supported from that village. And their job is to just train, train, train. Mm -hmm. And when they get given what's called jibore, which is orders for war, they have to then take their equipment, go to war for the Lord, and basically continue on his campaign until he's finished. It could be winter, could be summer, it depends. And, of course they would bring the, with them Ashigaru servants or like foot soldiers. But if you're in the harvest season, those soldiers need to get back yeah. and start harvesting. So that's one of the problems they have. And you mentioned that um, this element of training in their lives. Um, and did this take place in like an organized school or what like how was the uh uh the the skill set you know transmitted from from uh one generation to the next originally it's actually quite a hot topic debate that ah. um so <laughs> originally they must have been in family units because the samurai were spread out throughout the land so before 1600 or approximately 1600 the samurai are in the mountains in the valleys they're spread everywhere and they must be studying with each other. So, for example, grandfather teaches grandchildren, mm -hmm. uncles teach them. There's a big sort of like, let's say, 20, 30 people in the family unit sort of training each other. But then what happens is you get the order when the Tokugawa take over. Basically, there's an order for one castle, one domain. So all castles in Japan are destroyed in the mountains or most of them. And people are made to come to the city centers then all the samurai come out of the sort of fields and the farms and they have to be in the city. It's from this point on 
you start to see organized training schools really develop and start to basically become the most popular way of passing on skills instead of from family member to family member. And these schools uh, had scrolls of information or knowledge that they uh, recorded, or is this something that happened at a later point that it started being written down? No, scrolls were quite early. You do see them in the Sengoku period, like the 1500s, but it's quite difficult to go before that. So after 1600, you get peace and we get a burst in the amount of scrolls being written. Mm -hmm. Now, some scrolls are very basic. They just have the titles of the skills. Other scrolls are fully detailed and illustrated. It just depends on the look of the draw, which one you get, really. And uh, is it safe uh, to, to say that I think the majority of the books that you've uh, translated, edited, published have been um, uh, about the, those sorts of scrolls or uh, um, both the, you know, uh, uh, samurai and ninja scrolls and, 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 and those kinds of documents? So I have three layers of books, basically. Okay. I have... My, the scrolls I translate with my translators, they pretty much do the basics of the translation and then we work through it. That's the first, we got primary evidence there. Mm -hmm. The second one is actually, I then start to interpret that and publish books on how or what those, what that information means and how can we use it and mm -hmm. how to access it properly. And then the third layer of books is the very easy to understand bit size. Here's some extra information I picked up along the way, you know, just for a bit of fun. I found actually that at first we started publishing just the scrolls, but people just couldn't understand them without the context or without explanation. Sure. And it became obvious people needed, you know, a way to understand them. Well, and it's really helpful if there's one person like yourself who has spent so much time, you know, uh, processing and, and understanding the context just to uh, to be uh, given that introduction rather than having to, you know, everybody uh, reconstruct it. Um, mm, yes. Yeah. In fact, actually, that's a problem. When people start interpreting it, yeah. you get a lot of different sort of opinions on what the text means, and you're like, well, no, because you can't convey the words quite correctly because you've got to stick close to the trans, you know, the original. Yeah. But of course, that's got its own problems with its original language, and then if you move too far away to explain, you've you've stopped translating and more interpreting it. Then. Yeah, and not everybody is going to have you know be able to develop the language skills and so on yeah, yeah. um you know, I, I guess what was how so how were these scrolls used in their time and um what is the value of studying them today so the scrolls in their time normally are memorandums they just help people remember what to do so because it, when they're not at war and they're physically not doing it every year it start they start to decline in skills so you get a lot of samurai start to write down what they used to do so mm -hmm. that they can teach it and it doesn't get forgotten mm -hmm. and so the second question is how is it useful today that totally depends on the person some people are literally just doing cosplay they do it mm -hmm. they get dressed as mm -hmm. samurai and they walk around and you know they enjoy it that way uh, other people want to genuinely know about the history of it they go for experimental history and try to understand what the samurai actually did and other people try to bring it into their life by maybe adopting the philosophy or understanding the strategy and maybe using the strategy within their life uh, I, I really enjoyed uh, hearing a little bit you mentioned uh, I mean it comes up a few times in this uh, the samurai and ninja book about the mythical origins of some of these schools like the uh, the stories about how there was a, a deity or a spirit that uh, appeared to the founder to reveal the secrets of martial arts yeah 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 um, you basically get about three sections of an origin story in martial arts schools you get the real one like i learned this from this person sure it then moves backwards and says but he's connected to this legendary chinese person and then it goes even further back and they say oh who got it from this god yeah, and the sure. god came down sometimes mm -hmm. they miss out the middle bit and just say the god came to me personally and i sure. you know I spoke to the god of the star Polaris, and now I am the master of the school, you know, that type of thing. Well, I'm open to those kinds of ideas, but I also think that there's a certain poetry in it, you know? That, yes. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that it, 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 not everything has to be, like, so literal documentary. And, uh, and and this is also a long, long time ago, too, when just, mm. you know, there were different ideas about uh, history and uh, 
uh, poetry, I suppose. <laughs> oh, definitely. Yeah. They, they, without doubt, believed in these things. Some schools are very, very magical, especially Mubyoshi Ryu is a school that really, really had, believes in demons and ghosts, mm. and they have lots of protection spells, things like that. Well, that's wonderful. I mean, they, they, I can see the uh, um, impulse to protect yourself from demons and ghosts, but did they ever actually, like... Uh, you know, take the step of like forming alliances and and uh, and you know, that, like having the demons on their side too, helping them. <laughs> Ooh, that's a difficult one. Actually. Yeah, I suppose the so you know the famous Kujikiri, the way they sure, put but the lines in the air. I do, but not everybody does. So just right. what, what so basically? There, yeah, there's a spell called Kujikiri. And everybody knows this as the ninja finger weaving, where they sort of make cuts in the air or shapes with their hands. Uh-huh. It's nothing to do with ninja like that. But originally, it's more likely a Taoist spell. Yeah. And what it actually does is it says, like, warriors or ghostly warriors line up behind me and protect me from the any entities ahead or any, any problems ahead. And you are genuinely making an alliance with sort of the ancestor mm. spirits to line up behind you and go forward as your protectors mm-hmm. so there's only been one document where i've seen they say you should really deal with the negative side of spirituality and that's uh, chikamatsu's idea of he says the ninja magic is quite dark mm. and ninja magic does get dark there's lots of dog executions mm-hmm. creating demonic things to help you do your task as a ninja well, that also touches on another question I was going to ask is that uh, in a lot of the uh, scrolls, you'll see remarks about uh, portions that must be transmitted orally um, or uh, secret secret information. Yeah. And so um, I, I feel like you've commented before about the, uh, uh, the relationship between that secret information and magical practices. Is that is that the case? Yeah, you do find a lot of the time people say, I want to know the secrets, what's this, mm-hmm, the oral mm-hmm. translation? And a lot of people are disappointed because most of it is magic. When you get down to the, the nuts and bolts, the final layer of things is the magical ability, the spells, the talismans and that. Which, of course, a lot of people are not interested in that, so they want more, or what is the secret of warfare, not what's the secret of magic or religion. Yeah, yeah. One of the things is that I found really interesting about that, though, is is I'm just not sure about uh, the way knowledge generally was transmitted, uh, you know, more generally. But I've I've really been struck by um, parallels between the way Tibetan Buddhism, like the the information and practices, are transmitted through these uh, lineages where you have to receive. Uh, uh, oral authorization, and uh, and they have these kinds of texts that, that that you have to have read to you before you really kind of have permission to read it, and so on. And so the parallels between a lot of those practices have really um, uh, been striking. And and I'm wondering, is this just generally how knowledge was passed on at the time in the area, like through these uh, uh, lineages, and uh, um, you know, with I guess some kind of initiation or or like authorizations was or was it very specific to um I don't know if you No it's all yeah it's yeah. absolutely secret even in acting and dancing they would have signatures mm. and they'd sign and they have to pass it on orally and every family's got their own tradition yeah. they've even somebody's recently I say recently last 10 years or so published um the Japanese actors' secret document and things like that. Oh. Carpenters had secret documents. So I know the yeah. samurai, a lot of them would uh, sign a blood oath. Uh-huh. So they would say, I will not you know, reveal these teachings to anyone else. And as they go up the ladder, they have to then make promises. And they usually do this in front of an altar. They get washed first, dress in their finery. They then are, of course, given the information or the techniques. Or if they're studying something of higher level, they have to make prayers first and incense burning. So, for example, one of the vows, this is more about a vow of loyalty. So what you would do is write your vow of loyalty on a piece of paper. Mm -hmm. You would then burn it and capture the ash in a bowl. You would then mix it with water, possibly sake or some sort of alcohol. We're not sure. Put blood in it, possibly, and then you drink it in front of an altar, and then you make your promises so that they go to the gods and things yeah. like that. Well, it seems like uh, even if you don't believe in magic, it seems like it has a really powerful psychological effect. Like you're not going to forget that you made that vow, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. And they actually say that in one of the scrolls. They say people genuinely believe in the gods, but if they don't, then yeah. at least signing something like that 
publicly shows that they can't get out of it and people have said they've signed it. Yeah. Well, we're kind of uh, jumping around a little bit, but uh, um, I, I'm curious, like, I know that you're uh, working on your own um, um, samurai, you know, school. Mm. Yeah. And I'm curious, do you do those kinds of things? <laughs> do you? <laughs> uh, do I do those kinds of things? Well, actually, I try to divide it into two things. I try to, first of all, be academically proper yeah. and ground myself. And second, I try to follow the actual teachings. So, yes, when we get to a certain level, it will be get clean, get in front of the altar. I do have an altar upstairs. I do run it correctly. But I always have to ground myself in history first. Mm -hmm. So my school is called Natori Ryu. I've been given permission from the original Japanese family. We've got, you know, association with the gravekeeper of the original master. And, yes, we do do the rituals there in Japan. And we do obviously pay homage to the family, but at the same time, I have to be very strict with myself and say, no, academic okay. barriers first. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> um, I've also noticed, uh, um, I, I, I don't have the exact, I, th I think it's in the uh, section at the back of the last, uh, the Lost Samurai School. There's a, a, a yep. section on ritual magic. Here we are. Section on ritual magic. And if you look at some of the, um, uh, mantras that they're saying they're really obviously uh sanskrit yeah oh yes yeah yeah and uh and so that's really interesting that it seems like uh um they also incorporated some sort of uh magical practices from india uh, without a shadow of a doubt yeah a lot of people don't realize this is a lot of japan or a lot of japanese things is based on indian culture of course because of buddhism but it comes through the lens of china so buddhism of course goes to china they then adapt some sections to fit in with Taoism, and then it arrives in Japan. And what actually is the case is they cannot read the Sanskrit a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. They cannot pronounce the mantras. So when you listen to the original uh, mantra in Indian and then listen to it in Japanese, you yeah. can see that they're really struggling with it, and they've made it Japanese. Yeah, it happened. The know? same thing happened in Tibet. That like there's a, ah, there's right. often a very large gap between the Tibetan pronunciation and the. Uh, yeah, Sanskrit. Yeah. <laughs> so but in that's... Japanese, the kind uh, the Sanskrit is known as bonji, sort of basically Indian letters, and they they're all over. They have them on swords as protection. Mm -hmm. They have them on their armor. Mm -hmm. They they're really popular. Indian magic is really popular in Japan. Well, and you mentioned the sword. This, uh, um, you know, I, I've been thinking about it, and I think like the the most uh, uh, the popular image of. Uh, uh, um, uh, samurai and ninja that I have in my mind from popular media is actually from Kill Bill, you know. Yeah. And uh, um, you you talk quite a bit in the in the Samurai and Ninja book about the sword and the the difference between how important the is it the katana uh, yep. was in uh, uh, is in popular media for uh, the samurai versus the reality. Um, was it was it not the case that it was quite that big of a deal? So basically, originally, the bow yeah. is the biggest deal. Even to the end of Samurai Times, the bow is the emblem of all Samurai. They mm -hmm. are mounted archer warriors, same as, you know, the Mongols are mounted archers. But of course, as the armies got bigger and they got more compact, they then move. Becomes extremely popular, and even a magistrate, which is known as a bugio, is like a war minister, a war magistrate. His emblem is a spear, and the head of an army owns a specific spear. Well, everybody has a sword all the way down to the lowest soldier. So and the lowest soldiers have like a bamboo spear or a, a, a terrible spear, basically. So it's mm. only after they ban the sword, ban the wearing of double swords from peasants that it becomes a symbol of samurai. It's only after about the year 1596, so roughly. So about halfway through samurai times, the sword becomes the emblem of the samurai. Before that, anybody could wear them. Yeah, in in, uh, uh, in Kill Bill, you kind of get that sense that it has this kind of magical quality of like the sword itself gives you this this incredible power uh, that that other samurai don't have if they don't have the same quality well, of sword. You actually, know? Yeah. <laughs> the sword still is powerful even in early samurai times to say because one of the three treasures of Japan is a sword and they have legendary swords. So mm -hmm. it's not the sword itself, but sometimes the idea of the sword and in buddhism the sword cuts through your negativity or cuts yeah. through your disbelief yeah. so yes the emblem of a sword is powerful even in early japan but it isn't a status symbol till later on 
but it always has this ancestry of being a powerful symbol. And so you've also recently published these uh, two beautiful books, The Book of the Samurai, Fundamental right. Samurai Teachings. Um, I was wondering if you could say a few words about what is, uh, what are we looking at? So basically they are the translations of the first four scrolls of Natoryu, the school that mm -hmm. I have resurrected. Mm -hmm. Now the reason I've picked those is simply because there are thousands, tens of thousands of scrolls in Japan that I could pick from. But this is the one school that seems to have started from the beginning and finished at the end and said, this is what samurai actually do. Most other scrolls are like, here's the secret teachings, here's your magic rituals, and or here's this bit. That actually, they go from beginning to end, including the arts of the ninja. So I have. they were written by Isui Sensei, who's called Natori Sanjoro Masazumi, and he was alive in the 1600s. And he's actually the third grandmaster of the school. Uh, the school starts in the 1500s, but it's him who puts it all together. Mm -hmm. And the reason I've published them and I focus on them is so that the world out there can have, at their disposal in English, a full samurai school of war from beginning to end, and then I will resurrect it so they can join it and actually learn the ways of the samurai, as opposed to, as you say, Kill Bill media style yeah. things. Uh, well, and you mentioned beginning to end. What? Wh when was that end, and what did that end of the samurai look like? What I mean, though, more is the beginning to end of samurai skills, okay. not their history. I see, I see. So, you start at like what is the basic so the yeah. first scroll is called Heika Jodan, which means um talking about times of peace. So how do you walk down a road at night and what happens if somebody tries to jump on you or how do you commit seppuku if you if you've done something wrong? Then the next scroll is about armor. How do you wear it? What what are the rituals behind armor? So for example, when you make cloth or cords for armor, you have to face a specific direction and you have to chant magical uh, chants and cut in a specific way so that your cords on your um, armor imbued with power and it goes all the way through to the very end for the deepest esoteric buddhist teachings which will hopefully be published sometime in the future uh, hopefully but, yeah when we get around to so the in, there's only two books there that you've published but we're looking at about eight or ten volumes in total okay of the uh books uh, book of the samurai series yes mm -hmm. So it's going to be a lot, <laughs> a lot of work. So I suppose we've um, then talked a bit about, you know, samurai and who they were. Um, so what is the relationship between the samurai and ninjutsu? And first of all, what is, you know, the word ninjutsu mean? Right. So basically, the samurai are a social class. They are the top 10%, 5 to 10% of um, a feudal system and they are a warrior class and they are like a standing army ish they do not have to work they simply are paid to train in war now one of the jobs inside of the army is the job of the shinobi no mono the ninja so some of those samurai a very small percentage will study the arts of espionage those arts are called ninjutsu or shinobi no jutsu mm -hmm. and it doesn't matter how low they are from foot soldier level all the way up to high-ranking samurai, some people within the samurai community will study espionage and saboteurs and things like that. So, were the uh, were there, you know, ninjas or people practicing ninjutsu? I mean, first of all, is ninja an identity? You know, in the same way as being a samurai, and um, and second of all, were there? Uh, people practicing ninjutsu or, or ninjas who were not also samurai. So that's where that's where the slight difference comes in. If you so your samurai is a social class, so it's the same as being in the middle class or the upper class. But your job is like a lawyer or a butcher yeah. or something. So somebody would be either a samurai who study who their job is a ninja, or they would be from the lower foot soldier class whose job is a ninja. So they can identify as both a samurai and somebody who does this specific job. And, and the specific job is, uh, it sounds like it's a, a mixture of, I guess, uh, what we might call like paramilitary skills, covert operations, and um, uh, more intelligence work in the sense of uh, 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 like spying. Yeah, is that accurate? Yeah. I would say that so then shinobi breaks up into multiple sections so you're either a yeah. samurai or an ashigaru a foot soldier who does the the arts of the ninja but then they break up into 
pure spies or commando guerrilla warfare paramilitary people and then of course they have a dash of black magic in there and the esoteric and then uh, they for example have safe houses all over japan and they'll move mm. into enemy territory and then stop at a safe house or if the army's on the move they'll move with the army so you've got to look at the ninja in sort of if you want to stereotype them you might have a really hard lad with his you know shaved head style guy with his military jacket on and his knives all over him walking with the army and everybody goes oh there's the ninja you know watch out for those guys they're rough but at the same time you might have the geeky guy with glasses who's learning languages the computer nerd who's off somewhere else preparing for the army to arrive so the ninja break up into that so what would you say is the defining characteristic of uh, uh, ninja skills is it secrecy um, or uh, or what is it that ties it all together and that makes it separate from other kinds of martial arts skills? It is about foreknowledge or deception. Foreknowledge and deception are the biggest things. If you can understand something way before it's about to happen, and if you can deceive the enemy because they're looking at you trying to find out what's going to happen, that's the element of the ninja. That's why the ninja and the lord work very close together because he needs to know what's coming up and he needs to tell them some of his plans so they can deceive the enemy lord and then they have a sort of game of cat and mouse who can who can outdo the other one. And and what kinds of techniques did they have for uh predicting the future in that sense? So it's so first of all from one element you would have the basics like they would go out months before and find out what is the financial situation of the enemy. Mm-hmm. They would then count how many people they have and then work out how many warriors they can field on a battlefield. Mm -hmm. So when that army turns up and they're something like, say, 40% short of the amount that should be there, you know 40% of their warriors are hiding somewhere. So the ninja's got to spend months trying to work that out. Mm -hmm. At the same time, they would then use deceptions such as double agents. They'd send double agents in or doom spies. So they send people with the incorrect information and then make sure they're captured so when they're tortured, incorrect information would come. They would try converting other spies, lots of little different avenues. However, they would even then go into the esoteric Mm -hmm. and start to send dream magic. So they would try and invade the enemy's dreams. Oh, that's wonderful. I know, it's really cool, isn't it? That's actually um, Fukushima Ryu, and that is in the Samurai Ninja book. And it's there in one of the scrolls. And yeah, basically would say, do this, get this from a graveyard, this type of moss, and you make it. And you do the ritual and tell the enemy commander in his dreams that he's going to lose and send bad omens. Mm. Um, so when people mm. say to me, what do the ninja do? You're like, that is the broadest question in the world. Like, there's so many things they do. But mm-hmm. that's also the problem with trying to explain ninjutsu is it's so broad that it isn't one specific thing. So, for example, archers, in a, as an army goes and you're an archer, you know exactly what they do. They've got to shoot forward. They might have to shoot backwards. They'll do tactics. But they say, what does a ninja do? Like, well, a lot of things all over the place. And and that's why in the, the manual called the Shoninki, it says ninjutsu is like a void. It has no shape. It's just there. You know it's there, but you can't put a shape to it because it branches out everywhere. Well, and one of the things that's really struck me is that, like, uh, today I'm, I feel sometimes a little puzzled, like, why does the CIA handle both um, human intelligence and paramilitary? It just seems so weird to put those two things together. So it was kind of surprising to see the exact same uh, mm. uh, uh, kind of uh, um, skill sets or, or activities combined in ninjutsu, you know, thousands of years ago. Yes, it, they absolutely same side of uh, so two sides of the same coin basically they mm-hmm. go together. So I guess we uh, uh, we're gonna you know open a little bit more about you. You have this book, uh, Modern Ninja Warfare, where you you know kind of talk about uh, the uh, parallels between contemporary intelligence practice and in medieval ninjutsu. So uh, maybe we could. You know, talk a little bit about uh, um, some of the similarities and differences, because I mean, again, like it does seem there, like there are like a real striking number of similarities. Yeah, the that book was actually brought about by the publisher because for years people have been saying, how do they, how can we use it today? So there's a big difference between using it today and then comparing it to the modern 
one. So I wouldn't say there's been there's been no evolution from ninjutsu to today in Japan. They are not connected. Uh, Japan uses a Western system, but you can definitely definitely compare them without a doubt. And as I said before, it's like nowadays you have your special forces and you have your spies. It's quite separate, but there is more of a merger with the ninja. The ninja did seem to go into two, and of course there was a lot to do with. Uh, dialects and language because there wasn't such global yeah. communication before. So there's a lot of it. We need we need a um, a language specialist, which I suppose still happens today. Oh, you need absolutely. someone with you on a team yeah. as a language specialist. And even the slightest problem with language, and and you're given away and you'd be executed. Wow. Yeah. The mm. way I would say uh, there's one way I use to show people how dangerous being a ninja actually was. It's like going in today to a modern cartel, a modern sort of drug cartel, infiltrating their troops by becoming a member of them, getting all the passes and security codes you can, getting to the main central figure, killing him, burning the sort of like residence down and escaping while other people then jump through the gate and start murdering everyone. And it's like, would you do that? (laughs) It's pretty difficult. And you've got to get your lingo down. You've got to look like you're from the street. You've got to do everything. I think that's a great example, and it also um, strikes me as not entirely far off from you know s- what some uh, parts of the intelligence community is actually yep. about today, you know, and really how dangerous it really is. Um, did you hear about the London shooting the other day? No, we did not. I haven't. So no. uh, London, there was a they re- released a terrorist, an Islamic terrorist, and uh, he was released halfway through his sentence, and within a few days or a few weeks. He started knifing people, wow. but they actually, for weeks, had undercover police agents or spies or whatever following them. And he was actually one of those who drew a weapon and shot, I think. So even to today, on the streets of London, they're pretty much doing the same thing. Well, and I, this this reminds me, this is the question that I uh, had forgotten for a moment, was about... Um how these skills i mean and this might not necessarily be an answerable question but like i'm really interested in how um these you know skills survive from one uh nation or people and and and, you know are kind of transmitted across generations um uh uh, so in such a way that like I don't think that like Japan or Europe or any of these people are developing you know from zero you know the the exact right. same skills over and over again um so that's just really interesting to uh, like I guess it's transmitted through military um uh, uh I guess you know uh, the development of militaries you know I would say it's half and half because yeah. you get what we would class as spycraft where it's just become independently you need to put somebody else in the enemy they need to do that you know and certain amount of it is universal because everybody needs that but then yeah you must have certain skills that are transmitted or people have adopted that skill and they've adopted this so i think trying to track that would be a very complex well and you'd also have to be very specific i think like i can i think there's quite a bit written about the very early days of the cia which wasn't all that long ago you know the 1940s and 50s is when it started happening and you can see certain individuals who came in and this is also the case with uh this book by Christopher Andrew, The Defense of the Realm. He's talking about the history of MI5. Uh, right. Uh, you can see a point where one individual came in, like there had been kind of this ad hoc uh, beginning, and then someone came in who knew what they were doing and started professionalizing it. You know, right. and that's bring, bringing in those skills from somewhere else. But it also makes me think about, uh, like, the, there's such a strong emphasis, um, it seems, in martial arts. I'm more familiar with it in more kind of esoteric circles, but like there's such an emphasis on the authenticity of the lineage. And, um, and I think that that kind of uh, underscores, you know, maybe that's a little bit taken a little bit too literally sometimes that like, for example, in Sufism, you know, people can say that they are uh, the, uh, spiritual inheritor of someone who lived you know quite a bit before them that they never met and you can still be as like just by like getting the spirit of that person you know i feel like like the idea might actually have been a lot more loose than uh, a, a lot of people are so literal about it you know it, do you think that that uh uh i i don't know there are ways that that that's the true with ways that also i think there is uh well especially in japanese martial yeah, arts yeah. that 
they was very much uh, at first there's a focus on lineage because you need to go back to ancient China. But then what happens is the it's called the turning upside down and the lowest ranking samurai overtook the highest ranking noble samurai. And this is in the 14, 1500s, basically. And then new ideas were accepted as better. So, for example, bringing in muskets was considered a superb idea or suddenly changing your tactics. Like Kusunoki Masashige, uh, he says he his lineage goes back to China, but he has new ideas on guerrilla warfare. But then again, when peace comes, they say, oh, I'm from this lineage. And lineage is very important then. Yeah. But the problem then comes again in modern times, in the 20th century, is that a lot of it became static and useless. And even recently, I've just been reading some of the samurai at the end of the 1800s, when the samurai actually finished, were saying like these skills are outdated now. And this is not what our original samurai did. Even if our lineage is right, this has changed too much now. Mm -hmm. So actually, lineage is a big problem within my work. Do you believe it? Do you not believe it? Is it worth it? Is it not worth it? And I'm curious, did some of those uh, people that you're just talking about, some of those samurai, did they actually become integrated into the modern Japanese military? Uh, the samurai at the time, yes, some of them did. And uh, some of the samurai went to the officer class. Some of them opened up businesses. I think, I can't remember, but some of your big car companies are mm. ex-samurai. You know, I think some of them are not, but some of them are. I think Mitsubishi is one that used to be a clan. So you sort of read, they had Japanese history, you're like Mitsubishi or something <laughs> like that. You're like, what? You know, but they obviously had the money to go on. But some samurai just became very poor. So by the end of it, they, they disappeared into the, the world. But actually... The samurai didn't quite finish when everybody thinks they finished. They actually were still known as warrior families up until about the 1940s. People knew they were ex-samurai. Mm -hmm. But some of them obviously made the transition into modern times very well, and some didn't. But, for example, have you heard of the Nakano School? Mm -hmm. Which is, so World War II, um, like in, the, in Europe, we had the SOE, the Special Operations Executives, and they were under Churchill and things like that. And then the Japanese had the Nakano School, and it's famous for its espionage. But we found um, that uh, a, a table that says they taught some ninja history, but actually most of it was modern Western ta espionage tactics. They pretty much forgot all lineages back to Japan and started with Western things. And so... Um the uh, uh, modern Japanese military and their intelligence service. I know absolutely nothing whatsoever about Japanese intelligence, but did they inherit or import their skill sets mostly from Europe? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think I think I am not up on modern Japanese history, but basically I think their army comes from uh, Germany, they're German trained, and their navy's possibly Royal Navy British trained. And they, that's how they just start importing and changing their tactics completely. And in fact, by the samurai finish in around 1870, roughly, and by 1904, 1905, they're defeating the Russians as a modern military force. Within literally 30 years, they are a world power in a, in a Western military sense. So we don't know, of course, because it's secret, but their, their espionage must have gone along the same lines. Interesting. Um, and so a lot of the uh, the the scrolls that that have been translated in the ninja skills books, they do uh, um, cover in a lot of detail the kind of trade craft for the Middle Ages. Um, so what is uh, uh, what do you get from studying that today? You know. From studying that today, to be honest, I, yeah. I get this question a lot, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. And and it depends on the person how you answer it, or depends on how you interpret the answer. But I always say, what is better? So there's two answers to this. What is better, having to go on FIFA on your game, your console, and just playing a computer game, or studying ancient ways to rebuild your mind? Do you know what I mean? Sure. And my what friend once said to me, if he could do everything James Bond could do, wouldn't it be great? And literally, James Bond is a ninja. That, that, that's what he does. So the question is, is if you can train yourself to be physically fit, to be thin, to be out there, to be in the mountains, to know esoteric magic, to have multiple language skills, to understand explosives, and be as highly trained as a modern special forces, it's not a bad thing. As long as you're not blowing anyone up and you're not using it, you're definitely doing something good with your life. 
So, but inclusion, in if you want to push that to how really useful is it, it's probably more useful mentally mm -hmm. than anything. So there's an old saying that three day, uh, sorry, one day of training in the dojo is three days of bravery in the outside world. And uh, here in the U.S., there's a lot of uh, overlap between martial arts community and the military. A lot of uh, military very, very interested in uh, Japanese martial arts. And I'm wondering, is, uh, uh, is that the case? And like if someone, for example, were involved in um, uh, you know, modern intelligence work, would they find value in studying you know, medieval uh, shinobi? Or you would find yeah. it, yes, in more of the uh, ideas. Though obviously, modern military now is so technologically advanced that you would, yeah. you would need to stay with that. But actually, most of it comes from the thirteenth chapter of Sun Tzu's Art of War. Yeah, the, sure. the sort of that the, the, that type of it. And absolutely. So, from today's point of view, is just understanding that what are lies and what are not lies, what are mistruths, how the world is presented to you is extremely important so even modern military i know they still study sun tzu today and without doubt i've been contacted by many people in the modern military who say that's pretty much what we do today and even that they it's helped me understand a deeper you know it's helped me understand deeper it wouldn't replace modern military because of course mm -hmm. everybody's evolved but yes a person in the modern military would without doubt benefit from going down the old route and so uh, you you speak about it like as a way of organizing your mind. Um, is it uh, then? Is it the philosophy? Is it the um, uh, values? Um, it's more actually. I, it's called yeah. so overall. It's called gunpo or gunjutsu, which means skills of the military or skills of this. And what it means is you need to have a reservoir, a collection of responses to certain situations or a collection mm -hmm. of strategies to go forward. And the point of samurai training, including ninja training, is to be able to pick the correct skill at the correct time to respond with. Or if you're gonna go forward, do it. So you need to be able to, re so even physically, you know when somebody attacks you and you respond mar with martial arts, you need to respond in conversation, in business strategy. And if you're just randomly making stuff up with no structure, often you go you go wrong but uh, samurai training will produce a mind that can pick the right thing at the right time for the right situation and uh, i i think uh, what, what you just said a moment ago was really interesting about um you know discerning i i you know i interpreted it as, as kind of discerning truth from falsehood and being able to uh, uh um perceive deception you know or mm -hmm. and also i think use it you know use yeah, skills of course, yeah. yeah um so uh, is, is that kind of like, uh, uh, you know, contemporary influence operations or uh, um, psychological, psychological warfare or um, uh, what, what am I looking for? Propaganda? Is, is that is yeah. it? Yeah. But, but so, I can so, also see how this can be more of a philosophy and that can go very yeah. deep. That could go very deep. Well, on a philosophy side of it, for example, in that Natoru book, the uh, Book of Samurai, it talks about the idea of judgment and contemplation and what it actually means when you boil down the text. This is the problem. The text is not quite so obvious yeah. until you, you deconstruct it. Yeah. But what it says is no matter what you do in your life, whatever your goal is must be pure. So if you want to be the head of such a corporation or something like that, or you want to have the biggest business in in something you mustn't destroy other people to get there you must be pure to get there but at the same time you have absolutely every horrible twisted skill to protect yourself so the center of your idea is pure but outside has all the armor of deception propaganda everything but don't mix the two do not mix your pure goal with your defenses otherwise you're on the path to hell it's really interesting like in putting it that way it sounds like we've been talking quite a bit about the military and not so much about business, but it very yeah. it, it very much does sound like Japanese business philosophy, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Must be honourable and not get there, uh, yeah. you know. So I've actually adopted those things into my life. I've tried to change them as much as possible, mm -hmm. you know, to try and go with the philosophy without it becoming cheesy. The problem is, is a lot of people will do theatre philosophy, like, oh, I, yeah. I'm the way of the samurai. I follow this. But the moment they're in trouble, they lose all that sort of composure. Yeah, sure. Um, 
mean, there's it's there's uh, there's a huge difference between you know reading about something and experiencing it you know and <laughs> danger yeah. is certainly one of those things <laughs> yeah. you'd be freezing on the side of a mountain no sleep yeah. no hands shaking can't make a fire and then try to be nice to everyone yeah. no sleep starving well i and I, yeah i was also uh just noting the the uh, difference between my experience of reading some of these texts and then discussing them with you too, like uh, it, it's it's really light years difference. That like if I uh, can you know read through something on my own out of a book, I might not make too much of an impression. I might yeah. not even get like what was that? What was the big deal about that? And then just like having a conversation with you uh, opens up dimensions that I would never have been able to even perceive just by picking up a book and reading it. That is the number one problem I have, to be fair. Um, I am, I've got a lot of things I can't do in life. I'm not great at some things. But the one thing I can do is be a connector between ancient and complicated ways and the modern world. And I seem to be able to fit in that. And my aim is to make people understand this is what you can do with it today. You can actually do this. But, of course, we need to sell a lot more books, and then the publisher will let me do these books that go in the middle, you know, these connector yeah, books. Yeah. So my new Art of War, I just brought out The Ultimate Art of War, and it is one of those connectors, which is my first one. And so many people have translated The Art of War, but how many times have you read it? I've read it so many times. I don't understand a word of it. You know what I mean? Sun Tzu says this, does he? What does it mean? And what do you do? And then people have wrote, written the history of Sun Tzu. I'm like, well, I don't really care if crossbows were invented in this century or coins weren't there and this means that. So what does he actually say and what does he mean? So finally, I've started to put those together. And like you just said, people are starting to go, ah, okay, that makes sense now. I'm mm -hmm. getting that. I understand. Well, and it, it also reminds me of... Um... I don't know this kind of like a uh, uh, basic irony that uh uh you know as you mentioned quite a few times the uh if someone in this uh classical era were a uh ninja the point would be no one would ever know and and now today it's kind of like an image is is yeah. kind of the primary thing is it's about you know not only having the black outfit and the uh the stars to throw but um everybody needs to know it too you know yeah, that's why it becomes theater doesn't it, it becomes pantomime yeah. and theater yeah, yeah. and you're like if you really want to see modern people studying as ninja then you would get more like somebody who was very focused very concentrated very um, agile in their mind and you wouldn't realize for months or a long time that they actually studied ninjutsu and then eventually yeah. you might get it out of them they're like how are we getting this from you like well actually but straight away the people you're talking about is like I studied ninjutsu yeah, yeah. and they run around <laughs> and you're like what you know what <laughs> I had one friend who lived in Japan in the 1980s and 1990s and he trained in a in a Japanese school and it, he didn't realize for about five years they were teaching him ninjutsu in the background and they oh. weren't a lineage they weren't going from the past they had just studied the manuals I've studied mm -hmm. but they they adopted it into their school and after a while it's like am I studying to be a ninja mm -hmm. <laughs> like yes well done for catching up <laughs> so yes it's totally the opposite to what you say I, it seems like there's an enormous potential, you know, and it's it's really interesting. It seems like it can be very profound um, as long as the right people come together and also the right compelling need, you know. It seems a lot of times there's also, you know, only so much that someone can do with it if it's just, uh, uh, you know, uh, out of uh, casual interest versus like, yeah. you know, I, I, people who actually have jobs that, that it can be integrated into you. Um, it's like having a casual interest in Buddhism. It doesn't really get you anywhere. So, I mean, you've got to really actually be in it and do it. Or they learn a couple of skills and which doesn't really get them anywhere. And I keep coming back to this just because it's a topic that I'm uh, often very interested in. But just like it, it also strikes me the similarity between um, not just Tibetan Buddhism, but a lot of magical practices in general, the, the element of secrecy and this idea that like no one is ever supposed to know that you even... Uh, uh, you know, are involved in this, you know, is the ide oh, yeah. ideal. Yeah. 
Oh. And what's interesting is they're all running around with these magic secrets and they're all swearing off. Most of them have got the same secrets and they don't know it with each other. So yeah. all of them are doing yeah. this, you know, this cooji magic and they don't realize the guy down the road is doing the same magic, but they can't talk about it. That's funny. I spent a, a year recently uh, in Israel too. And it's the same with Kabbalah that like I was there studying Kabbalah and, uh, Everybody I met, literally everybody, would tell me first of all that it's very dangerous, that uh, yeah. uh, you have to be careful, and um, everybody would tell me that that you shouldn't study, it, and literally everybody was studying it. You know, like yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. don't I, study that. I'm doing it. <laughs> it's very dangerous and very advanced, and that's why I I study it. Um, so I'm just curious in general, like what are your uh, dreams for? Uh, the near future and the distant future in your work, both like published work and uh, off the page? So basically I aim, I am now 41 years old. Mm. I aim to retire at 80. I hope to live till I'm 90 and then I will have 10 years retirement and on my 80th birthday, the stamp is going down. I'm doing nothing else. So I've divided my life (laughs) into the next sort of like 40 years and I've literally just got to 2020 and I've done, I started this in 2010 and I've built the building blocks now. That's it. It's like I've told you what a ninja is not. I've told you what a samurai is not. And I've got rid of all the superstition and all the like the the mock religion, if you like, that they don't understand. So the next 10 years are going to be based on putting the spirituality back in the ninja and samurai. Start putting the magic back. Start putting a bit of, you know, the, the more esoteric stuff. And eventually I would like to build up my school, Natoriyu, so that we have places all over the world where people can go and study these things mm. and genuinely study to a, to a depth. And uh, But the problem we've got is going back to the ninja thing is we're at the worst time for the ninja now. We are genuinely at the worst time. So because, uh, annoyingly, mixed martial arts has destroyed it because everybody believes that ninjutsu is a hand-to-hand combat style and that because it didn't do very well in mixed martial arts, neither did the other Japanese or Chinese styles, they believe, oh, it's useless. And now everything from Japan in a military context is useless. But actually, it's not a martial art. It's not hand-to-hand combat. So people are like, oh, ninja, we're not interested in that. So it's left us in a position where we have to rekindle the love of ninja because it's too cliche. And that's one of the things I have to try and achieve. Um, And so, uh, again, like looking at the books, I get the impression that uh, if there was, you know, a contemporary school for this, it would look like a lot of combat skills and uh, that kind of physical martial arts. Is that what people uh, are studying and learning in in your program? No, actually, it's pretty much the opposite. The problem is uh, I've... You should be learning a martial arts school, like, you know, um, swords and spear and everything, but Natoriyu is actually all the bits behind it. So with star positions, um, how to move through the terrain. So there is physical aspects, but it's more like how do we live within the world? How do we start a fire? How do we carry embers with us? Do you know what I mean? How do we move as yeah. a squad at night? Trade but craft. then, of course, yeah. the magic stuff. And then, of course, how to swim or how to go on a boat. So it's mm. not the hand-to-hand combat. So when people come to me, they're like, I want to learn to fight like a ninja. I'm like, well, ninjas do fight, but they don't use ninjutsus to fight. That's espionage. What a fight like a samurai. I'm like, well, if you want to fight like a samurai, one of you goes around the back, one of you goes around the front, you distract the guy, and then you knife him in the back, and then you peel his face off. And then you take your face home and give it to your lung. Well, I can't do that. I'm like, well, what do you want to do then? I want to fight like a samurai. Mm. Well, okay then. So I'm lost in this mire of what people want and the reality. And I would hope that if you did find the students who were like, yeah, that's what I'm looking for, you might not, you might decline to teach them. Yeah, you'd be like, you know. So yes, I I don't want to take away that samurai were great warriors and they did do stuff, but I think everybody's got this idea that they're going to stand there and learn this magical technique that, you know, will get make them win every street fight or every bar brawl that they come across, and that's not what they did. And so... First of all, is it something that that uh, people would really need to be local to study with you? And uh, like, what does that look like if you have a new student? What do they do? It's actually the opposite. We are quite widespread across the world, but we're a small organization. So everybody starts by going on Facebook and going to Natori Ryu Hub. 
H-U-B. And that's where everybody starts chatting. And then they can join courses and they send in, sometimes it's a written report, sometimes it's a video of what they're doing. Sometimes they have to literally go out in the countryside and start a fire, not in the countryside, not in properly. Mm-hmm. And they have to like show that they can understand star charts. So there's a bit of everything all over. But until we get bigger, no, it's not local. It's worldwide, but pretty much individual study with somebody. There's a guy called Andrew Throwburn who runs all the courses. Hmm. And uh, what, so what kind of courses are there? So you've got scouting courses. You've got ninja courses. There's um, a, a sort of semi-fitness course. There's also, um, we do a bit of Japanese writing and lots of little bit. And then, of course, we have the main courses such as water skills, art of war, things like that. So it could be anything from making a map of your terrain, counting out the amount of like warriors going past. Sometimes we make them count cars and things like that, or even writing an essay on the concept of deception. So it's a little bit of everything all over. And of course, do things like Kujikiri, perform the spell of Kujikiri. Well, um, is there anything that I didn't ask you that you wanted to uh, (laughs) throw out there? Yeah. I would say if you're interested, then find me on YouTube. I'm under Anthony Cummins on YouTube or I'm uh, hashtag historical ninja on Instagram. And from there, I've got tons of videos and you can follow me and keep up to date. And if you really, really are interested in starting to study, just go onto Facebook and look up Natoru Hub and speak to a man called Andrew Throwburn. You'll easily find your way there mm-hmm. and that you can get involved. And just please, obviously... Um, have a look at the books and see what you think about historical samurai and ninja skills. Well, thank you. It's uh, uh, really interesting stuff, and I'm looking forward to seeing how it develops and uh, what you, where you end up going in the near future with these uh, as you're opening up this like spiritual uh, aspect of ninjutsu. It's really interesting stuff. Eight, four, one, nine, eight, and...